Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Lorna Hackett and Michael Mansfield QC. Lorna is a barrister with extensive litigation experience in judicial review and human rights. She was called to the bar in 2003 with expertise in advising cases of sensitive nature. Lorna is head of practice at Hackett and Dabs LLP. Lorna is a campaigner for prisoners serving imprisonment for public protection, suffering from mental health issues. She's a strong advocate for a Removing stigma attached to mental health through her work with SOS, Silence of Suicide. We're also joined by Michael, and Michael was called to the bar in 1967 and joined Queen's Council in 1989. Michael has been described as the king of human rights work. He represented defendants in criminal trials, appeals, and inquiries. Some of his high-profile client cases have represented, including Stephen Lawrence's family, the Birmingham Six, Mohammed Al-Fayed, and the Hills disaster. Michael has represented submissions to the United Nations, Human Rights Council in Geneva on Human Rights Violations, and United Nations General Assembly in New York. Michael established Took Chambers in 2015, founded the mental health charity SOS Silence of Suicide alongside his wife. So a very, very, very warm welcome, Lorna and Michael. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Rob. Yeah, thanks. Everything's true except for my age. (laughs) Well, we like to have a bit of an icebreaker on the show before we dive into things. So before we talk about both your amazing projects, experiences and what you've done for the legal industry, we have a customary icebreaker question here. So on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Coming to you first, Lorna, if you've seen it. I have seen Suits. Um, I have to say, one to ten in terms of, so ten being true Very to Very real, yeah. Mm, I'm going for a two, <laughs> I'm afraid. And I'm I, going for a two. That's absolutely fine. I can tell you've definitely seen it. And Michael, have you seen Suits at all? Uh, I was going to rate it zero because I haven't seen it. And that's fair. And we should move <laughs> swiftly on. So if, it, if, it, if it's a legal drama, you know, it's the one thing I wouldn't watch. Absolutely. Because they're all wrong, you know, and you sit there going, oh, you wouldn't you wouldn't ask that question or whatever it is. You know, we don't dress like that. We don't do like that. You know, things have moved on. People have got very stereotyped views. So now if I can avoid watching legal dramas, I do. Well, it's a... Exactly. It's a busman's holiday for Michael. Why would I want to watch one? (laughs) Well, let's get on to some more exciting things and talk about your journeys and what you've been up to. So to begin with, would you mind telling us about your backgrounds and career journeys? Lorna, would love to go to you first, then Michael. Sure. Um, Thanks, Rob. Uh, I am called, well, I was called to the bar in 2003 and I started off as a criminal defence uh, barrister it took me a while to get pupillage very difficult even then um, but I think certainly now it'd be quite hard for me to get pupillage because I am a very proud owner of a tutu um, but suffice it to say uh, I didn't give up I got pupillage um, and then I um, moved up north and spent some time working in a law firm um, and I sort of fell into prisoners rights it was completely by mistake. Um, and that became a total passion for me. Uh, I, st- I did my first parole hearing in about 2007. And ever since then, I became um, a sort of quite a seasoned parole advocate. I've done a lot of uh, judicial reviews, uh, human rights cases. So pl- particular emphasis on uh, those incarcerated, uh, whether rightly, right, rightly or wrongly, justly or unjustly. Uh, and then I uh, started my own firm because barristers aren't uh, allowed now to uh, advise members of the public directly and also to conduct litigation themselves. So I now run Hackett and Dabs LLP with my business partner, David Dabs. Unbelievable. And what a journey. And it's so impressive what you've uh, achieved. And I can't wait to, to learn more. But Michael, equally, would love to come to you to just tell our listeners a bit about your background and career journey. Because I mean, wow, it's an impressive one. How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the little um, anecdote that I tell regularly when people ask this, particularly when I give talks to police colleges, which may surprise people, but I do, how to get it right when they say don't you know, people say you shouldn't have to do that but anyway i do and the question they ask is you know why are you doing what you're doing kind of thing and i say well it all goes back to my mum 
because I was destined to drive trains. The whole of my family, going back to great-grandfathers, were all um, on the railways one way or another, usually station masters. I have a lot of top hats from that period when, you know, you had to wear a top hat and tails if you're in charge of a station. So I come from that background. That's where I come from. Um, but uh, my mother, my father was disabled, First World War. So um, my mother did the driving and he sat in the passenger seat and I was in the back usually. But one day, um, it's in North Finchley. I lived in Finchley and it was in North Finchley, well, Whetstone, if anybody knows it, which people do. Um, she did her normal shop on a, sun on a Thursday. And she went to a shop, which uh, everybody knows, Sainsbury's and so on. And she had a regular thing, stop, plum, plum. One Thursday, um, a, a really quite um, short-sighted, myopic police officer decided she was going to be done for parking between the studs of a pedestrian crossing. So she was summoned to Highgate Magistrates Court. And my mother wasn't going to have this. She wouldn't break the law for love nor money. And, you know, she... She was in love with Margaret Thatcher. We had a flag, you know, flying outside the house and all the rest of it. So she was absolutely, you know, right on the spot. And she goes along. She defends this case. Unheard of. A parking case in the 1950s. Before that, even. I can't, I can't remember the exact date now. Anyway, she goes. And the one thing that the, that, that the police officer hadn't noticed was that my father was sitting in the car. And so... Come the Perry Mason moment, in comes my father, disabled, you know, First World War veteran and all the rest of it. He didn't even have to open his mouth, acquitted. And so my, my mother then went set, said after that, she said, Michael, if they'll do that to me, what are they doing to the rest of the world kind of thing? And after that, she had no time at all for, and I, I, I tell this story to police colleges because I said, you know, if you think that distrust of the police stems from a certain community you've got to be careful what you're doing every every act that you do you've got to consider the, the repercussions and that police officer colored her life and she always called them blue bottles after that and and she said to me you know that we, we need to take on this now you need to ask questions michael all the time and so i i gradually every time i was in the back of the car you know she said there's another one over there what's he doing what's he up to so it was kind of that was the background and I thought, no, I can't possibly do that, you know, the sort of thing. I'll, I'm fine with trains, thank you. Until I saw, um, actually, so I'm a celluloid child, until I saw a series, a film series called The Defenders. It's an American series on British television. They've, they've done an English version of it since. In which, I think it was a father and son took on amazing cases. The interesting thing was they very rarely won. But that, that wasn't the point of the series. It was saying they are being given an opportunity to articulate the issues. And I thought, yeah, I, I would like to do that. My father, before he died, said, oh, Michael, stick to trains, you know, and, and so on. But in fact, I, I pursued it. I thought, no, I think I can do this. I could do this. And we had a particular like poet society uh, at, uh, at the school I went to. And the teacher who set it up in a tea shop in the village nearby uh, got me to talk. And he said, you can do this. And the combination of my mother, the defenders, and a teacher at school saying I can do it, I thought, yeah, let's give it a go. And so against the odds, really, because I didn't know anybody in the profession. And I started off, as I did with university, I failed to get in to begin with. And I had to go and knock on the door and say, will you take me? I failed my law exam three times in the days when you could. So, you know, I, I, I've never started off on the right foot. Anyway, I can give you What a story. And it's, it's incredible because you normally, you know, there's a family influence to people going into the law, but that's a very different one of the sort of influence from the family going into it. Fascinating. Thanks so much uh, for sharing. And Laura, we'd love to, to come back to you because I mentioned in the intro, and obviously you briefly mentioned it as well, you know, you run sort of Hackett and Dabs alongside your, your colleague with David as well. You know, as a head of legal practice, you know, what do your responsibilities do you have? What does a day look like for you? Well, um, so we have all sorts of responsibilities, which we divide up between ourselves. We, we have a couple of consultants who um, sort of work remotely, but um, we have to, so of course we have, you know, 
different responsibilities in terms of, for example, data protection, anti-money laundering, etc. But it's effectively, we joke about it being like we're, we're in the smallest chambers in the world. So we are our own clerks, we are our own secretaries, we are our own, um, you know, receptionists. Uh, we also, so we do everything together. Um, and uh, it, it works really well. We have, uh, I have to say, it's, it it really works when you really like the person that you are working with. Um, but we do very different areas of law. And so we bounce off each other quite, quite nicely. And uh, so a typical day, it might be, you know, going into court. Um, sometimes that's quite, well, quite often post pandemic, it's by video link. Um, or it might be advising people over the phone. Um, I, I have to say, because I, I represent a lot of people who are incarcerated, my phone tends to ring off the hook, because that's the, the quickest way for them to be able to communicate me, with me. And, um, and most of David's clients uh, communicate by email. So we have very different types of practices, but there is always music on. There we go. Love it. Love it. Okay. And Michael, would love to come back to you because you were called to the bar, I believe in 1967. Then you established Took Chambers in 1984 before taking Silk. So how did you go about creating your, your own chambers? Well, I think um, because I, I've already told you, I, I've come in from the outside, really outside. And I just thought that the law then, and to some extent now, was really out of touch. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, okay, I went to a public school, but, and I was, in that sense, you know, I'm part of that background, but I didn't go to Oxbridge. And the whole collegiate uh, and rather elitist atmosphere at the bar then, uh, less so now, uh, was such that I thought, in a way, because I didn't feel part of it, I don't, I'd have to create it for myself. And I, I thought I can do it for other people because, you know, there were others who thought as I did. And, I, uh, and at the time, there was one other set of chambers who set up uh, Wellington Street with Tony, Tony Gifford. And so I just thought, well, if I can find a collective of people who um, have similar ambitions to, to put the law in touch with the ordinary person and and, and identify with the issues that matter to people, um, then that would make a difference. And there were a, there were about six of us. And, and in fact, it was interesting for me anyway, and it, it wasn't tokenism, but you know, six of us, three were women and three were white and, and it was mixed between the things. So the six that started off, you know, it was really exciting because we, 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 di we decided we didn't want to be in there were there are places where all the chambers are now and they can be anywhere pretty well, you know, in the North Pole. But then they were in the four ends of court, which was another element of control and oversight, which I thought well, I can do without all that. So um, we set up, you know, in fact, Cook's, I mean, if you know Dickens uh, at all, it was called Cook's Court in Dickens uh, and Bleak House, a wonderful passages about a lawyer's office as it then was. And the street is still there. I don't know who's in the premises now. So we set up in this these premises off Chancery Lane, but not in the inns. And um, we set up at a time which were of unrest. And there always is a time of unrest. This was during the mi miners' strike of 1984. And so we all said, right, we're going to commit ourselves to defending miners in magistrates' courts where there's no bail, all the things that were going on up there was dreadful. And actually, I moved up there and somebody else came up with me. So for a whole year, most of the work we did was defending miners against spurious charges. I mean, most of the charges in the end did not succeed, but not a single police officer got prosecuted or even disciplined. But that was the atmosphere at the time. So um, that propelled us, well, propelled me anyway, for many years after that. Wow, fascinating. And again, thanks so much for, for sharing that and putting some extra sort of colour on it. And Michael and Lorna, both of you have, have started your own, you know, firms, chambers, in, and it's a huge venture. And I know from starting business myself, there are challenges that come with that on top of the actual day job. So Lorna, would you like to answer first what have been some of the biggest challenges for you sort of as part of that entrepreneurial journey? Yes. Um, when you're in, I think when you're in chambers um, or when you are working in a law firm, um, there is a, that entity is already established. So there's already, there's already a supply of work. There's already a client base um, and stepping out into the sort of relative unknown of, oh my goodness, we've got premises. 
we've started up, we're authorized by the BSB to offer these services. How are we going to get clients? That was, I mean, that was the stepping off the cliff moment for us because we were coming together from very different disciplines. Um, there, there, yes, we, we have four lawyers, but we're all completely different. We have a, a former parliamentary lawyer who is a, a consultant of ours, um, and we also have a retired Crown Court judge and um, clinical negligence QC who works as a consultant for us too. And so we are all very different, but um, it was just stepping off into this oh my goodness, At some, is anyone going to instruct us at all? Uh, we're not central London either. So we, we are in Hampshire, uh, about an hour and a half outside London. And it was, um, and we thought, well, we can, because our rent is, is lower, because we don't have the, the overheads, we can offer a sort of central London service, but um, in, in the provinces. Uh, but yeah, that, the, the, the biggest and the scariest part of this was, oh my goodness, is this going to work? Um, and I had a, um, a newborn son at the time as well. <laughs> So, wow. so that that was yeah. So Hackett and Nerves is now uh, just over five years old, uh, same as my son. Oh wow! Well, congratulations, and I mean that's that's inspiring to anybody listening to proof that it's 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 absolutely possible. But you make so many good points about you know clients, and you've got to think about that. How are you going to to attract them? And Michael would love to, to hear from you. You know what have been some of your challenges through setting up chambers and you know businesses over the years, or, or some sort of learnings you would share. Well, I always look back on the things. I'm just smiling to myself because, it, you know, you, you can't make it up, really. <laughs> I, I mean, at the beginning, um, I knew because, I suppose I should say this in, in terms of the background, I thought from the beginning, that's before Tuxcourt, before 1984, when I first sort of joined the bar and all the rest of it, I thought in order to connect with ordinary people, I've got to be involved in ordinary things. So one of the things I got involved in very early on, before the Chambers, and th this is important because I, by the time I set up Chambers on my own, you know, not on my own, but of, of my own, um, I had a clientele. I had a client base already, a constituency of people who said, you know, we're, yeah, yeah, we're very keen and so on. And the reason that that happened, and I have to keep saying it to people now, because it's even more important, because the situation of funding and all the rest of it has collapsed, but the but the need and the support is still there, but you have to do it a different way now. But it's the same principle, which is you, you don't get become involved in campaigns just for the sake of it. You decide on what, what the things are that you interest you, that you want to promote, that you want to support. So I got involved. And that, you know, then, you know, barristers regarded themselves as surgeons. Well, dear boy, you know, what you're doing, you know. This is just a body, you know, and you know, somebody else is coming along. You must not get involved. So I did the opposite. So I did get involved, and I did. I got involved at that stage in giving advice on drugs and drug addiction in terms of the legal ramifications, and wrote a book as well, all at the same time, where the solicitor was doing exactly the same thing, wanted to do the same thing. And so, unfortunately, he's passed away now, but we, we, we did it every week, uh, Hungerford Bridge, under the bridge, and in King Street, Covent Garden, set up clinics and all the rest of it. And I got in touch with ordinary people. I, I mean, you know, I knew nothing about drugs. I knew nothing about these people at all. But I learned a lot because they taught me about the lives that they'd led. And, and I was trying to help when it came to court cases, trying to get courts to understand, you know, people, judges who say, what, what's this right? Is it a cannabis? That was the phrase, cannabis. And so I thought, well, that got me into it. So that clientele, not necessarily drugs, uh, because there are all sorts of other issues I was interested in, including, you know, Irish politics and so on. And so I knew, I knew that there was a base. And as provided I had a, um, a collective of barristers who had similar political objectives, we could stand up to all the criticism, because I was known as a red under the bed in those days. Um, so... No, the, the thing we had, the challenge was getting the, the technical matters straight, the bureaucracy straight, all the, the rules and regs. They're much more now, but there were quite a lot. And of course, we, we, we had a clerk who wasn't a qualified clerk. We said, we're not going to go for the usual clerk. That's an that's a in-house system, which we wanted to change. So a, a solicitor who I won't name, he's, he's a lovely man anyway, he said, oh, I'd like to clerk you. And we had another idea, which was, we were all going to pool our fees and be equally paid. Now, that was unheard of at the ballet. Well, what? And furthermore, you know, the clerk wasn't going to get a percentage. He was going to get a salary and all that. Anyway, 
you talk about challenges. I just remember one morning. I mean, we hadn't been going very long, maybe six months. And, you know, I used to go into chambers every day, make sure it's still there and all that. And then there was a letter on the clerk's desk. There's no clerk, you know. <laughs> Gone on holiday. So what? And what he'd done is he said, I've got to bring you all up, you know, Give you a little shock. Look, it's such a lot of work here. I don't think any of you realise what we have. And I've gone, I've gone on my bicycle. Well, I had his, I had a number. They didn't have mobiles in those days, but I managed to track him down. I said, look, I've got Sunday lunch for you. Just come back. We'll talk this through and we'll get it right. You know, and so it was really trying to get things right on the ground, the practical things that I think was the biggest challenge. The work, not a problem. We had plenty of that and, and, um, and exciting work and important work. And for example, that's how I got to know Arthur Scargo because uh, because of doing that work and being up there, actually living, you know, in Rotherham and places like that. I got to meet everybody and they said, oh, I know him. Yeah, fine. So it, it was totally productive situation from that point of view. Thank you. And what, what a great answer. And I, I always say to people, you can't build businesses on quicksand. And I love that you're sort of identifying there to sort of, you know, the, the infrastructure and getting things straight and, you know, encompassing of that people. You know, you need to look after the people and have the right people and all heading in the right direction. And and, and Laura also talking, Laura talking obviously from the, from the client perspective, you know, thinking about that ahead, how are you going to bring them in through the through the door? So some really great learns there, Bo. Thank you for, for sharing that. And Laura, coming back to you, um, because, you know, you're busy. Um, you're also... Um, uh, sitting on the advisory panel member for Inside Justice Investigative Unit for Alleged Miscarriages of Justice, which is a mouthful, um, but very meaningful work. So can you tell me a bit more about the type of work you do there? Yes. Um, so it is um, inherently difficult once, and, and Michael can talk about this as well, um, inherently difficult to get your conviction quashed once you have been convicted um, and sadly uh, all too often incarcerated for a crime um, on which perhaps there wasn't the evidence to demonstrate um, so that the jury could be sure um, of the, the defendant's guilt. Um, there are, sadly, people in prison who are innocent of the crimes uh, for which they have been convicted. And um, while there is a court of appeal and there's the Criminal Cases Review Commission, um, the funding is, is quite limited. And so Inside Justice, uh, which I'm, I'm very proud to be an advisory panel member for, um, has a pool of um, a, a variety of experts from the from the police, um, from forensics, um, from uh, just investigative journalists, um, imaging experts, that kind of thing, um, who are able to get together and talk about uh, these these cases and how best to investigate, find the evidence. Um, and then put together applications either to the Court of Appeal or the Criminal Cases Review Commission. There are some amazing lawyers on that panel, and um, I have to say, they last year there was a, a, a very big uh, success um, when uh, somebody who was convicted of, of murder actually walked out of the Court of Appeal. And so this this work is absolutely vital because, of course, it's not just the person that gets convicted. Um, yes, we've got the, the victim, but the whole the whole system is undermined if a, a person goes to prison who shouldn't have gone to prison. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, so yes, it, it's a it's a collective. Uh, it, uh, you know, sometimes it is absolutely heartbreaking. We all have holes in our walls from having banged our heads repeatedly against them excessively for you know the frustration um, and the, the the length of time these things sometimes take in order to 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 get to justice ultimately. Um, but we all do what we can. Uh, because if there's one person in prison who's innocent, then that fundamentally, in my view, undermines uh, the credibility um, of and the integrity of the, the rest of the justice system. I know that Michael has a lot more to say about uh, miscarriage of justice cases than I do, so I'm going to hand over to him. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, clearing my throat. Yeah, I mean, uh, inside justice and what Lorna does is extremely important because, uh, yeah, 55 years practicing, so I think I'm probably justified in what I say about it. I think the situation's got worse. It has not improved. It was pretty bad at the beginning. So you can tell how bad it is now. One of the reasons is public funding has dried up pretty well. It, uh, in all sorts of spheres, civil legal aid and criminal legal aid, and the ability, therefore, to do the research that may be needed uh, for rectifying a wrongful conviction, of which there are many, uh, originally, of course, 
we didn't even have the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which we have now. However, I remember the days when basically I and a few others acted as if we were the commission because there was a very small department in the Home Office that dealt with these cases. And of course, they didn't really deal with them at all. And so potential clients would write to me, for example, I could always tell, you know, what was up on the envelope. They're always written in green ink. <clears throat> and it's as though somebody's got a ruler out and written along with a ruler. It, and you know what it is. You know what it is. And you open it and there's this terrible story. Well, of course, I can't, I can't go and investigate. I can try and sort of lift the lid a bit. But I don't have the resources then to do that. That, that led to eventually a situation in which there were some really brilliant investigative journalists. Um, or, or, for example, i just give one example, Rough Justice, who, who investigated cases and they had the resources. And of course, the courts didn't like that. And the Lord Chief Justice of the time, Taylor, really, who was a very good Lord Chief Justice, but he abhorred these independent journalists taking over their job. So they, they ran into trouble. And then, then the commission was set up to attempt to deal with these thousands of letters but even they are now running out of funding as well and it's it's, it's a very difficult situation and so what we're, we're trying to well Lorna does it as well inside justice has helped a great deal in terms of opening up the cases but the problem now besides funding and covid is, isn't the sole reason there's a huge backlog i mean that's happening in the courts themselves at the trial stage but it's also happening on the appeal stage and I've got one, I won't name it at the moment, quite a high profile one where his referral by the CCRC took a long time. But by the time it did happen, it was well over a year ago. And that's it. Still sitting in a queue. And so uh, and this is somebody who, you know, every single day that you're locked up, I imagine it is, it is real purgatory and you are you know, in a sense, mentally deranged by a situation where, you know, the amount of daylight you see is very limited. And the conference yesterday, there were two officers from, I'm not naming them either, all the prison, but the Lauren knows more about this than I do. You know, people, because they haven't got this staff, they're locked up all day. Mm. Locked up, there's no regime, there's no rehabilitation. That They would like to do that because it's, you know, less onerous for the, the officers concerned. So we, we have a dire situation, which I don't think the public are fully aware, and, and the government's aware of it, but, you know, they, they're spending money on other things, as you know, but I could spend an hour on what they're wrongly spending their money on. But anyway, that's another issue. So I think we we feel embattled, as Lorna and I particularly feel embattled in a situation in which we're, the, we're trying to keep the banner of hope written up there and try and inspire people that, you know, once they extinguish hope, you know, we're almost a lost cause. We've got to keep hope alive. You've got to believe in the fact that you can make a difference. And on the whole, over the course of time, I think from time to time, not, nothing grand, but enough to, as it were, restore faith in humanity. That's really what we're trying to do. Absolutely. And just on behalf of everyone on Legally Speaking podcast and why we do this show is, you know, we want to try and, you know, push for change and, you know, highlight these, you know, these these issues and things that exist. And, and it's really important we have these conversations and bring them to light. So thank you both, Lorna and Michael, for for highlighting that. And, and Lorna, coming back to you, it probably segues quite nicely talking about mental health because you're an avid campaigner, you know, as you've mentioned, for prisoners serving imprisonment for public protection, suffering from mental health issues. So as a campaigner, what lessons have you learned about breaking the stigma around mental health? Yeah, I, I mean, it's fundamentally, uh, the, the reason why I started uh, campaigning, it was back in 2010, actually, um, when IPPs, this is Imprisonment for Public Protection, was still um, being given out left, right and centre. They came into, they started in uh, 2005. Um, there's been quite a lot of press about them subsequently, but I... I had a real problem with going to, for example, it sounds very middle class, so I apologise in advance, but you go into a dinner party and you say, did you know that you can be locked up indefinitely for something which is a relatively minor offence? Let's say uh, let's say an attempted robbery where no actual violence is used. I'm not trying to say that's not a serious crime, 
but let's say that that's the case. Let's say you're a drug addict and you yeah. um, you go up to somebody on the street and you say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to hit you or I'm going to stab you unless you give me a cigarette or 10 pounds or something. And you go to prison for, let's say, the judge says a minimum of two years. And that's in 2005. And we're now in 2022, 17 years later. And that person is still in prison, never got to open prison. Can you imagine what that does to that person's mental health? So they think they're going to prison for around two years. It's a brand new sentence at the time. Prisons didn't really understand it. Probation didn't really understand it. Um, and then because of the way that the sentence was um, enacted, you had to prove to the parole board that you no longer pose a risk. So the onus is on the prisoner to be able to prove that they don't pose a risk to uh, the public before they can be released. And of course, that, there were a huge number of people who got these sentences. They thought that there would be about 100 people a year. In the event, it was about 1,000 people a year. So they simply weren't the resources. It's gone all the way to the ECHR now. And of course, these were abolished following the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment Offenders Bill uh, Act in uh, 2012. But that didn't change the position for these people retrospectively. They're, these people have lost their families. They haven't seen you know, loved ones for years. Their lives are shattered, destroyed. Uh, and there are still more than a thousand people who have never been released and who are still in prison serving these sentences, despite them having been abolished for over a decade or nearly a decade now. Um, that for me is, you know, we talk about compassion. We talk about um, rehabilitation. We talk about redemption. Well, how can those those people need to be given a chance? And uh, for me, it's trying to support those people and to show that there is still hope um, so that they don't give up. Because sadly, a lot of people who have um, been sentenced to IPP have committed suicide in prison. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's very important to try and support them, their families um, and to get them the right results at the parole board. Absolutely. Really, really well said. And, and thank you for highlighting that. Thank you for the work that I know that you, you tirelessly do. Time for a quick break from the show. Are you a legal aid practitioner in England and Wales, specializing in civil or criminal legal aid matters? If you are, this message is for you. As a legal aid solicitor, you don't have time to waste on legal aid case management software that doesn't work to your needs. That's why Clio has developed a quicker, more accurate and affordable solution for legal aid solicitors in England and Wales. It could save you hours in your month, particularly when it comes to end of month invoicing and claims to the legal aid agency. To see how it all works, visit clio.com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. That's Clio, C-L-I-O dot com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. Now back to the show. Michael, coming back to, to you, because obviously you've dealt with a wide range of high profile cases. I mentioned in the introduction as well, the likes of the Stephen Lawrence's family, the Birmingham Six, the Hillsborough disaster and, and the ongoing Grenfell Tower inquiry, to name just a few. Um, you know, how have you dealt with the pressure of such cases? Oh, right. Well, <laughs> I was thought you were going to ask something else. How have I kept with it? Well, um, I'm trying to give it a considered answer because it'd be easy to say, oh, well, you know, just a stiff upper lip and you have a face each day as it comes. It's part of that. But I think, I don't want it to sound good, but actually it's the people I represent have got me through it. That's funny enough, the people who have the problems get me through it because there's amazing um, courage, commitment, and, uh, I, well, you've named a few, the Lawrence case, um, the Bloody Sunday families, the Grenfell families. The Grenfell families haven't had to wait quite so long, but a large number of these people have had to wait, you know, 20, 30 years to get some form of justice. And they are an inspiration uh, because you like to think you'd be able to do the same, but would you, you know? And I've met them when they felt at rock bottom, that there's nowhere to go. And you provide them with an opportunity to talk and you just do what I was saying in the previous answer, namely, not only give them support, a bit of reassurance and just say, you know, I'm on your side. I'll stay there. I'll be there for you. And 
I'll do what I can. And that's sometimes all they need to hear. And in one, uh, one case, that certainly turned a corner for a lot of people. So that's how I keep going, because I feel because I feel very fortunate. I feel very lucky. I feel very privileged that I'm actually in a job where I can make a difference. There are lots of jobs where you can't make that difference or you feel you can't make it. And so I think that, you know, I have to treasure that and I have to nurture that. And, and I do. Um, I just want to pick up on one. Um, it actually flows exactly from what Lauren was saying about suicide. We're both involved, but and the meeting I had yesterday was about the very same issue. Um, and that is my daughter committed suicide a few years ago now, but I was in the middle of Hillsborough. And it's an answer to your question, really. How did I get through that? Well, I was really, obviously, for obvious reasons, completely shattered because it came out of the blue. You know, you never know. You feel afterwards you should have known, but you don't. And... Interestingly, the Hillsborough families gathered round and said, look, in a sense, it was an irony. They said, we're mourning children who wanted to live, and you're mourning somebody who didn't want to live. And we understand. And they did understand. And so although I took a few days off, um, I did go back because I felt going back was going back to the family because they understood exactly what was going on. And yesterday, the, uh, what I wanted to highlight is that this isn't just about suicide. I think suicide is one end of the spectrum, if you know what I mean. What we're all facing, um, except the politicians, what we're all facing, every single person, I said in the room yesterday to everybody in the Ministry of Justice, I said, you know, um, everybody in this room today has got up with a stress factor facing them. It may be... God, am I going to get COVID? Or maybe not that. Or how am I going to get to work? Or I've got, you know, like Lorna's having to take kids to school and all that. Do I know about that? Yes. So you've got all of, there are stress factors, but they got worse and worse. We've now got a cost of living thing. And I said yesterday, we're living in a world in which a, a, an elderly woman cannot afford to heat her house. So what does she do? She gets onto a bus and spends her day on a bus. And Boris's answer to this, Oh, well, I did, in fact, bring in, you know, three bus passes. You go, where are we? And so I think the big thing now is, is, is really confronting the day, today, and trying to encourage people to see even and part of our podcast is about this. Is how do you, you know, raise yourself up? And if you, you're, you're living in a multi-story, for example, obviously I'm lucky enough not to be living in a multi-story, but some people really love it, obviously. But the isolation, and this is Mental Health Week, Mental Health Awareness Week. And the fact is, you become imprisoned in a bubble now, if you're not careful, because like us now, we do things in, on screen. And you don't go out quite as much. You don't meet people quite as much for all sorts of obvious reasons. And now you're having to worry about whether you're going to be able to live in the place you're living in. Uh, you may get evicted. You haven't. Am I going to be able to afford the food I need to eat? I have to make choices between these basic things. And of course, things are even worse. You're on the television screens in Ukraine and all the rest of it. These affect people. You can't watch all this. People dying and being bombed to smithereens. You can't watch all that and not be affected. At least I can't anyway. And so I get angry. And I think the, the motivating force for me from the beginning and the reason I suppose this is taking me a long time to get around to the answer really. I suppose the thing that keeps me going is anger. I get really angry about it all. And I think, God above, you know, how could anybody doing do this? And how could anybody survive this? And so it's getting inside that that keeps me, you know, there's always gonna be some of that to do tomorrow. Today really. Well well well, well thank you for sharing that, Michael. And um yeah, I just want to let that breathe a minute because as a as a sort of first time father myself, and just listening to that that story, it really, really, really hit me. And I just commend the work that you do, and I respect that you know you you know anger this fuels you, and I can I can really really sort of relate to that. So so thank you for that share, and I guess that leads nicely onto the work. You know, we, we we've touched on around the mental health, um, but the, the charity in itself, you know, SOS Silence of Suicide, you know, which you know I believe in 2015 alongside your wife, and you know it's it's probably good to just 
tell us more about the work there and how people can find out more? Um, because I think it's so, so important, the work that's done. Yes, well, uh, Lorna's a, a trustee. So we're working together on, on this. Uh, and obviously, my wife is the founder member. And to be quite honest, she's the engine room. Without her, I don't, it wouldn't survive. We're a small charity. We're a new charity. But we have a concept that is unique. And it, you know, like all these things, it's quite a simple concept. And it, it kind of arose in the first place um, when I went to my daughter Anna's funeral and saw the number of people who I didn't realise who knew her who turned up. So, so many, they couldn't all fit in the chapel in North London. She's buried in North London. And afterwards, we all went to a school where she, her, her children attended. And um, I, they said, would I say a few words? So I, I did say a few words, uh, probably more than a few, as you can gather. But anyway, I said a few words and, and, and I talked about suicide, which I hadn't really thought about. It hadn't impinged my life at all. And when I finished, it was like a queue of people around me. They said, you've said it. And I said, I said what have I said now? You know, because I'm always saying things. And I think, oh, God. And... They said, but you've used the words, you know, they didn't say you've used the word. You talked about suicide. I said, well, that's what it was. And they said, how do you do it? I said, I don't know. I opened my mouth. You can do the same. They said, well, will you, will you please go on and do this again? Because we now feel, because you've talked about it. They all came to, they were neighbors and they didn't know that somebody's father, somebody's brother, somebody's wife had committed suicide. Because, of course, once, it was a crime. That's why it's commit suicide. Uh, and it still is if you're an accessory in some way or another. So that, if you like, taboo stigma has been retained. So myself and my wife, we, and my wife, Yvette, had lost somebody as well, close friend. So we thought, we can do something about this. So we, what we did was, again, simple. We just said to people, okay, well, let's get together. And let's talk about it then, openly. We inaugurated it um, up here in, in Leamington, near where I live, and um, in a rather large assembly room. So we got people to come. And my daughter, who died, worked for Reuters and uh, before, long before. But they'd all remembered her and said, look, we'll, we'll stream this worldwide, this meeting. And the idea was, and this is the uniqueness. It, doesn't, it's, it sounds obvious, really, but nobody else does this. People concentrate on the bereaved. People concentrate on, you know, one-to-one -one advice and so on. And I thought, well, if you can bring the bereaved, the people who've attempted suicide, people who are thinking about suicide, people who just want to talk about it into one place, they can listen to each other. You don't need pundits. You don't need professionals. You just need each other. It's about a community. And the first one was really, I thought, very successful. And we got some... I just give you one example. Sorry, if I'm taking too much time, just close me down. I just remember sitting and listening. It was all recorded, and, and we said, you don't have to talk. None of you have to talk, so it's a bit like a Quaker meeting house. You don't have to talk, but if you feel compelled to, that's, we'd like to hear your story. And this rather elderly Jamaican got up, and he went to the microphone and he did something which I've seen. Neville Lawrence used to do this. Uh, he didn't do it on purpose. It's because he was grappling with how to say something. The place was completely silent. You could hear a pin drop. And then he started to talk. And he said, you know, I'm a postman. I've never said a word about what I'm going to say now, but I've decided I am going to say it now. Because if I don't say it now, I don't want it to go with me, you know, on, uh, into another world. I want you to know. I want, I, I want to tell myself. And he told this extraordinary story of life back in Jamaica with his father. And he said, we used to get up in the mornings, you know, and he'd be singing and whistling while he was shaving. He, he was somebody who had, you know, rhythm in the soul and all that. And you can imagine it. And he said, one day there was silence in the bathroom. And he described much, much more detail than I have. How you, you know, went to the bathroom and opened the door. Father was dead on the floor. He committed suicide. And he said, to this day, I've never understood why he did that. 
None of us have understood. None of us have been able to live with it. But now I've told you, now I feel I can live with it a bit. And I think this ability to tell, and of course there are lots of other people in the room, then they all wanted to say, well, actually, I've got a story, I've got a story, I've got a story. Uh, and I think it's the offloading. And every time we've done these meetings, and we've done them throughout the whole of the United Kingdom, uh, you know, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, we've done them all over. Universities, prisons, uh, you name it, we've been there. Uh, and we went to New Zealand for, for a different reason, but we set up a branch there as well. And the idea takes off each time, and people come back at the end, and they just say thank you. And, and, and we say, but we, we, all we've done is got you together, really. We haven't done anything else. You've done it. They said, yeah, but we feel released, liberated. We feel as though, you know, as the kind of prison we've been living in, somebody's opened the door, and we can leave. It's, it's okay to talk about it. And this, this was something that came out yesterday as well. So I think that, that's it. That's what we do. Yeah, and, and again, thank you for sharing all of those, you know, those stories and, and, and the work attached to that. And you mentioned, obviously, Lorna, that you're, a, um, you know, Lorna's a trustee of the charity. So I'd love to know sort of, you know, how you actively support SOS or anything you would like to say regarding the, the charity itself. Well, I, I think it's... Um... I think it's very important uh, work, I have to say. The, uh, as, my, as Michael says, the sort of stigma attached, the fact that um, I've, I have to say somebody I know um, sadly killed himself at the end of last year. And um, it's, it was the complete absence of uh, the fact that they, they didn't talk about it beforehand. There was, no, there was no sign that this person was going to do anything. All of a sudden there was just no answer to my calls and my texts. And I found out much about weeks later that, that he had taken his own life. Uh, and that, um, it, it was just dreadful, really, because it leaves this void in so many people's lives. Uh, and so for me, um, becoming a trustee of SOS was just a, a natural um, progression in terms of supporting people with mental health issues and actually there is a you know there is a step between having a mental health issue that people seek help for and having uh, perhaps those thoughts that one might not necessarily know about and therefore then it take, it gets to the point where somebody takes their own life that they might not have ever seen a mental health nurse they might never have seen a psychiatrist they might not have any mental health issues at all but that that to, to get to the point where they are even thinking about seriously taking their own lives, it, it's, I think it's important to look at this as a sort of holistic um, issue because it's not about the person who's gone. It's about, afterwards, it's about the people who are left behind because they will never know. They never have the opportunity to ask why. And uh, as Michael says, the, the fact that so many people are silent about this issue um, and it sh there shouldn't be a stigma. People should be able to talk about it because the more we talk about it, the less likely it is to happen, I would hope. Absolutely. And it's something we, we, we've done a lot of um, episodes and really tried to highlight the importance of being open with, with, with mental health and reducing the stigma and had lots of people from from range of firms and people really, you know, pushing for, for change and doing such meaningful work, such as, you know, yourself and Michael and what you're doing with, with SOS. Um, but Michael, you're no stranger to the media. You've been uh, presented on a number of television documentaries and series, I believe the likes of Presumed Guilty by BBC One. Um, what have you most enjoyed? about being on the telly um well i think it, it the most enjoyable bit of it in a way is the articulation of what i do in other words it's an opportunity to to, to continue the, the, the momentum that i've already described in other ways in other words reaching people who would otherwise perhaps not fully appreciate what it is you're trying to achieve so i think that's what i enjoy doing is being able to formulate a way presume guilty was was a particularly good example of that because it was based on a book and what i wanted that i'd written the same name and so it was really a film of the experiences in the book but it was it enabled me to explain in fact miscarriages again as to why they go wrong how they go wrong and what you can do about them, and why you must never, never, never give up. Um, in other words, every stone, unfortunately, has to be overturned because something's lurking somewhere 
You never know when it's going to come. It's never the obvious things. So it's that sort of propensity that you want to communicate in the films. And, and, and film is, a, is a, whether it's, you know, recording or whatever, is, is uh, that for television or a series, is another dimension. And it makes me think creatively about how I can do it. And then when you start thinking creatively about how you might communicate that, that helps with, well, it, I don't do so many uh, mainstream criminal trials anymore, but it helps with juries. If they can see that you're connected, like, you know, if I were connected, I'd be able to talk to the jury about suits, wouldn't I? <laughs> and, you know, I used to talk about Twin Peaks, you know, and Dallas and all that sort of stuff. And Monty Python, I bring that in as well, you know, Monty Python Circus. And the Spanish waiter, I've used that a lot. I know now. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you bring these characters in and juries begin to, and they say, oh, he's a real person. Oh, he, you know, he's, he's watching what I'm watching. Well, well, I am watching what you're watching. And the judges found that rather difficult to begin with because of course judicial notice was in the days in which you know they hadn't they, they kept themselves to themselves for all sorts of other reasons but um that's all changed as well but that that's the bit i enjoy most is is, is communicating and feeling that i've got a message across in in a different way that's it really yeah and thank you for sharing that and i've, I've really enjoyed your your work um particularly on the on, on the tv it has to be said and uh, it doesn't stop there with projects for you two though because uh, michael and norna you have a very new and upcoming project in the form of a podcast yourselves which i'm super excited about so lorna can you tell us a bit more about it please Yes, sure. Well, uh, Michael and I have worked together closely on a, on a number of projects, but um, it, this all started when we were asked by uh, Cambridge University to do a symposium. And it was effectively a, a discussion between us. Um, and we thought it went pretty well. And so we thought, well, perhaps we could do this again. And then the idea for the, the Two Heads podcast was born. Uh, and we are about to launch our first series. Um, there are going to be five episodes. And we talk, it's, it's not necessarily about the law, although, of course, we are both lawyers. How do you feel that you can be empowered to make a difference to your life as well as to other people's lives. Um, what, you know, what does the world look like post-pandemic? Um, what is truth and does it matter? So we're asking and we sort of debate these kinds of um, issues and hopefully people will find it exciting. Oh, I'm sure they will. And I'm, I'm super excited myself. And I guess, Michael, for you, obviously, it's um, maybe um, something you've enjoyed doing most definitely. What's the message you want to convey to the audience through the podcast specifically for yourself? Uh, well, I think perhaps the main message is the one that we all face. In other words, how do you face the day, each day, given all the stress factors that there are present in all our lives? You know, unless you're Rishi Sunak, you know, for example, who, who's pretending connection over, you know, the cost of living, where he borrows somebody's car, one he would never dream of driving himself. It, and it's shown filling it up at a petrol station and then he buys coke and rubbish sweets you know basically you know, that that image is fake news mm. and we've got to confront fake news uh, severely and I, I think there's an interesting debate on obviously whether uh, trump should have been taken off um you know his his media outfit on twitter or whatever he was using because i don't use any of it personally I, I find there's so much manipulation, I, I don't do it. So, but what, what I do feel is important is, is to provide people with the chance in the day that they've got that is so busy when you think you've got nothing, you haven't got time. Sorry, I haven't got time to do that. I haven't got time to do that. And you think, well, wait a minute, there are issues that affect your life. When you go into a shop, you've got choices to make. You know, do you, do you want to spend the extra penny if you've got one on the food that is commensurate with you know, preserving animal life and not exploiting animal life. That's one issue. So actually it's confronting you on a daily basis. And of course, the, the, the other message besides confronting the day and actually dealing with these issues, because they're on your doorstep, you can't really avoid them. We're living in, a, I call it a global village. Now this term stems from somebody I read, an author I read at the time I left university which I can barely remember leaving. But anyway, I do remember the book. Marshall McLuhan 
and the messages in the medium and uh, and the global village he predicted canadian writing years ago that the pace of technological advance and this is sort of in the 50s and 60s uh 1950s and 60s was going to be such that we were going to be so interconnected globally that actually what happened on one side of the world mattered to what happens on this side of the world and of course he was right and we do live in a global village now so that actually what's happening in the ukraine affects us not just morally there's all of that but actually it's going to affect energy supply it's going to affect food it's the wheat basket of europe and all the rest of it so we do have to think we have an obligation to think because actually it's about our survival collectively and individually and it's about raising an awareness of however pushed you are you know and i think people i have wonderful faith in people they do very caring things when they've got the minute to breathe and look up they do reach out and it's reaching and they, and they want to they want to make a difference they want to provide homes for ukrainians it's only the government that gets in the way so, so i think you know it's it's we want to be able to talk not just in sound bites which you know the, the public are treated as though you know they're they're idiots and they can't take on more than two words at a time it's completely wrong and, and the way current affairs are dealt with generally is you know you get really i get really angry about banal interviews that don't really ask the questions you and i want asked because and you know how do you feel after you've lost the whole of your family oh, excuse me you know so it, it it's insensitive questioning unthinking questioning <clears throat> no real challenge except in a you know a tabloid fashion which is okay as far as it goes so i think it that's what we're trying to get behind and underneath all of that yeah and uh, i would strongly encourage people uh, to check it out once it's uh, it, it's live because i think the the quality of the the conversations that both yourself and lorna have are, are absolutely fantastic and lorna i guess we'd love to come to you then michael you know before we wrap up what's been one of your your most memorable cases for you most memorable case well i'm it's sort of cheating a bit because it wasn't really a case but michael and i did the uh, people's covid inquiry last year um which was uh, an inquiry so a citizens inquiry uh, not a judicial inquiry um while the pandemic in the thick of the pandemic actually I, I think it sort of spanned pretty much the whole of the second lockdown um uh, in which we tried to get to the point well we tried to answer learn lessons now save lives what what could the government have done better what can we do better um why how how have responses uh, differed throughout the world in terms of uh, tackling the pandemic uh, what have been the economic and the um and the real the mental health costs to individuals to families uh, what about the bereaved uh, so we, it, i was very fortunate and very privileged to be counsel to the inquiry so i asked a lot of the questions and michael was the chair on the panel um that was it was such an honor to be asked to do that um and it is available online for everybody um i'm hoping that it will be taken into account in the forthcoming judicial public inquiry into covid um but it was uh, very humbling to see the uh, people who were willing to come forward and to give evidence um and to talk about their experiences because it goes back to sort of the connectivity of everyone while the pandemic has been something that we've globally had to tackle um it's really highlighted the inequalities and discrimination of our society but also really highlighted the fabric the people who undertake the the work to make sure that we can all eat that we can all receive post that deliveries arrive that we all can get pints of milk or, or whatever it may be and and it was just um it was just a fascinating experience uh, to be able to be involved in that i don't know what michael thinks of of the people's covid inquiry well i do <laughs> but i'm going to ask him in front of you <laughs> <laughs> what can i say uh, no i i think um, lorna's quite right and she was brilliant doing this because we could not have done it without Lorna being counsel who sort of in a sense assembles marshals the information asks the questions I was one of a panel there were three other medics of very high quality and I was I was really just the chair the others really knew what they were talking about and uh, I got to know what I was talking about but it takes time uh, and it was perhaps enjoyable but it is the wrong word but engaging and important 
because we were trying to make the point that the government has been negligent, well, grossly negligent in their handling. And of course, at that time, Boris was putting off a public inquiry, kept promised one, one, but one didn't happen. It still hasn't started, which was partly what we were predicting. But the people's inquiry is, I can very quickly sum up, I mean, it is a, a common vehicle throughout the world when governments, international governments and agencies like the United Nations or the International Criminal Court at The Hague or other institutions fail to enforce conventions and international treaties and human rights. So the people step in and they set up tribunals and they say, look, these are the problems, this is what's gone wrong and this is what you should do. Now, I've been involved in 17 of these over the years, so I'm very familiar with how they work. And people feel, again, it's the old thing, they feel at last somebody's listening and the, the people who want to speak are allowed to speak and that the recommendations that are made, of course, it doesn't change the world overnight. It isn't all about necessarily an immediate change. It's about feeding into awareness of what is possible. So uh, I was very pleased to be asked to do this, um, as was Lorna. But I just wanted to say, I, don't, I hope this, well, I'm sure you can edit it if, if Lorna is embarrassed by me mentioning it. Instead of all the cases I've done, of which, uh, you know, people know most of them anyway. Yeah, I wouldn't I, it was in, be invidious to choose any of them because they all had a particular point. They've all meant something to me and I wouldn't put one above the other. But the thing that matters most to me is a case that we're both involved in at the moment, um, but it's in its last stages in the sense that we've desperately tried to open it up as an issue. And we do talk about it uh, a little on one of our pods that we've recorded, and that is 5G. It's all right, Lorna, I'm not going to... Look, Lorna knows a lot about this. And to be honest, um, this came through somebody who'd contacted me, member of the public, I didn't know her, and, and she'd been affected. And I needed somebody to help do the preparation, and Lorna's become very involved. But the issue here is an issue which, I want, again, we want everybody to know about the dangers of irradiation. It's serious. It's a health issue. Uh, and it's a mental health issue. Because if you feel, in the end, you can't go anywhere because you're going to be irradiated by a mask that's sitting outside your front door or wherever it is, people are just not aware. They, You know, we've all got our mobile phones, you know, and, and, and everything else. Alexa, well, I've thrown mine away. You know, I mean, the fact is, it, we are sitting in a minefield, if you like, a radiation field, effectively, wherever we go. Now. Um, and if you become sensitized, your life is a nightmare. And so we're trying to challenge that. But of course, there's a lot of vested interests. You can imagine here uh, in relation to this, because it, it's business, big business. It's global business. So we've taken on a monster, and uh, I won't say more because uh, I know Lorna's looking at me. <laughs> I've probably said too much, but we'll be talking about it on the pod. And that, that ties in nicely to, you know, finally, Lorna, if our listeners would like to learn more about your podcast, which I'm absolutely sure they will, or experiences, where can they find yes. out more? Right, um, it would be the twoheads.com um, and our uh, podcast, The Two Heads, um, will be on all of the usual channels. So if you go to Podfollow, um, you'll, you'll be able to find it on um, iTunes and you know, so Apple Podcasts on Spotify, etc. It's going to be everywhere. Plus, we have our YouTube channel. So if anybody wants to watch a more unedited uh, visual of our, <clears throat> excuse me, of our discussions, then uh, you can do that on our uh, YouTube channel, which is also the two heads. Can't wait. And generally, if people want to follow or get in touch with with either of you today, I mean, it's been an inspiring, you know, very, very informative, um, you know, and an emotional. Uh, I'll be, you know, open um, recording, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. If people would like to get in touch. What's the best way for them to get in contact or to sort of keep in contact with yourself, uh, yourselves? Lorna, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn um, and you can follow me on Twitter because I'm at Prison Lawyer. Perfect. And for yourself, Michael? 
It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seriously not on anything. Um, I barely know what they all are because I, I've refused, refused. I'm a real Luddite in that sense. Um, no, I've got um, I've got an email address that's been around a long time. Nearly everybody knows it. So um, I, I can say it quickly because everybody's, oh, that's very obvious. It's m.mansfieldlaw at gmail.com. That's it. There we go. And people, they do. I get loads of com people contacting me that way. That's the quickest way. I, I, well, should I be giving this undertaking? Anyway, I do. Anybody who writes, I answer straight away. Pr probably well within the day, they get an answer. So I don't ignore them. I go through them. It's a laborious business, but I think it's important that people know that they're, you know, what they've said to me is recognized and acknowledged. I may not be able to give answers, but I at least say thank you. Yeah, got it, read it, got it. Perfect. Well, I would like to say thank you so much to both yourself and Lorna for what has been a very special recording and conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure and honour having both of you on the show. And we'd like to wish both of you lots of continued success with your, with your ventures and your missions for change within the legal industry. But on behalf of all of us from the Legally Speaking podcast, for now, over and out. This week's review comes from Mitch Jackson. Five stars. One of my favorite experiences in 2021 is finding this podcast and diving in while running along the beach or paddleboarding down at the harbor. When done right, I believe the law is an exciting profession. Rob and his team do a good job of sharing inspiring and entertaining episodes that help us all learn from each other while enjoying the journey. And what a journey the practice of law is. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy the share. That's my formula to the Legally Speaking podcast. Have fun. Thank you so much, Mitch, for your lovely, kind words from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast team. We really appreciate you.